University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our rebranding series in which we have been examining how we see ourselves and others. In reality, the way that we see ourselves matters. It directly correlates to the way that we see everyone and everything else in the world. And self-perception is one of the most challenging aspects of being human. And over the last several weeks, we've been taking a look at what it means to see ourselves in a different light, to see ourselves in the way that God sees us. As a person who is loved and valued rather than a person who is indistinguishable and worthless. And so for our conversation today, we take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, context matters when it comes to Scripture. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. The triumphal entry has taken place. The disruption in the temple has occurred. And Jesus continues to clash with the religious leaders and the ruling elite. Jesus has told the disciples many times over in his last three years of ministry that he will die. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. He has stirred uh, too much the, the controversy. He's challenged too many authority figures. He's broken too many boundaries for people's comfort. And so John, unlike his colleagues uh, of gospel writers, gives us this really in-depth look of this intimate final hours with Jesus and his disciples. Here, Jesus will give his final words of instructions. He will bless them in immeasurable ways. He will warn them of the trouble ahead. He prays for them, and then he shares one final meal with them. It's a troubling scene for for the story because we're sitting in this very room among his closest companions are some that have already betrayed him. Judas has already sealed Jesus' fate, stepping out in a shared space to conspire Peter does not realize yet that he will become a coward and a traitor in Jesus' most dire hour, and the whole lot of them soon will be scattered and hide in fear for their own lives. So that's what what happens next in John 13, so remarkable. John writes this in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and to go with the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world. He loved them to the end. What a curious phrase to begin a section of a story. But but immediately raises some difficult questions. For one, what can Jesus do for them? When you stop and think about it, the entire span of the gospel narratives, Jesus has done remarkable things for these men. It's not every day that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. In fact, it's the only time it happens in human history. So we can't even begin to put into words what it must have felt like for these men to be chosen by Jesus to be his closest followers. Some of them were poor, unremarkable peasants. Others were tax collectors and con men. There were teenagers among them, and the vast number of them were illiterate fishermen from a no-name place in a failed countryside of Israel's former glory. And he didn't just invite them. He empowered them to do something more. He showed them that they are loved and beautiful, connected and blessed, forgiven and purpose-filled people. 
They've gotten a front row seat, an opportunity to collaborate with God in this incredible work of transforming the world through justice and grace and inclusiveness and compassion. Many of them have not just witnessed Jesus' miracles, but they've experienced his healing. They've been transformed and renewed by him. They were promised to be the leaders of God's revolution through the church when Jesus was gone. So yes, what more could he have done for them in this moment? Especially what we know is coming in these coming chapters that he would die for their sake. But that raises an even more difficult question to consider, which is, what more do they deserve from Jesus? Jesus has given them and will continue to give them so much. What does Jesus owe them in the first place? What does God owe us in the first place? The first century Palestine is a microcosm of our world today filled with humanity's pursuit of power and control and stuff. We wage wars relationally and socially and economically and, and emotionally and narcissistically and nationalistically in a sense of dominance and desire and self-regard. The disciples' day was no different. The pursuit of me, myself, and I is, is nothing new. The, the ancients didn't have smartphones to take selfies, to post on social media with all hopes of getting the likes and admirations. But we do see in the Gospels that Jesus' very disciples fought among them as to who could sit next to him in the coming kingdom of God. Like children, they were fighting over a bigger piece of the pie. The disciples jostled for dominance. Our world is driven by self-centeredness though more often not outwardly brazen. I mean, just the fact that most of us might have begun to tune me out when I started using the word selfishness and self-centeredness pretty much proves my point. To a certain extent, our, our drive to, to look for our best interest, it, it's actually part of our evolutionary genetic makeup. I don't think that the human species would have survived if our ancient forebears thought first of the interest of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, hunger, over their own lives. To a certain extent, therefore, we are born with this innate drive to survive and to care for those that we love. However, our, our modern-day impulsion has driven us to a place in which we are constantly motivated, socially and economically and politically and even spiritually, to be self-centered. I want to look like her. So we spend our resources to improve our looks. I want to do things like he does. So we spend our time to gain fulfillment through activities. I want to have what they have. So we spend our money and possessions to get similar things. And of course, everyone is self-interested in a sense that we all look out for ourselves. We, we naturally put our time and energy into our own concerns over the concerns of others. And the disciples were no different. And the pages of the Gospels show us how they were always looking out for themselves more often than not. So I return to that question of, of, of if they're deserving of what Jesus might be giving them here in these next few verses. What do they deserve that Jesus is going to, quote, show them the full extent of his love? What do we deserve from God? An almighty creator that has already, out of God's bountiful love for us, given us life and the possibility of sustaining life through abundant resources on earth. Why would God do anything for us to show us the full extent of God's love? But this is where the story takes a fascinating and life-altering 
turn in verse 2. It says this, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I'm I'm personally not a person that gets grossed out with feet. Uh, I do know that my wife often tells me that I'm not allowed to touch my feet on her feet. Uh, Something about those rough calluses and jagged toenails. Let's have a quick lesson on feet. Here are some common foot conditions uh, that I chose not to put up on the screen this morning. Athlete's foot, blisters, bunions, corns, plantar fasciitis, hammer toe, gout, ingrown toenails, fungal nail infection, plantar warts, and foot odor. And that's just the beginning of the list. And I'm guessing what this guy is suffering from is a case of hobbit feet. If, if these are some of the foot ailments of today, imagine what the disciples' feet would have looked like back then. Why would Jesus do this? Remember, these folks walked around all day in sandals and unpaved dirt roads in the dry and arid environment. We, we don't know if the ancients practiced the art of manicure. The toenail clipper was not created until 1875. You know these guys had some dirty, cracked, mangled-looking toenails, and most likely some sort of fungal issue and smell that comes with it. So why would Jesus do this? Why would the Son of God come down from heaven to dwell among us to do all these amazingly remarkable things that he did in 33 years among us just to clean the disciples' feet. We might not get it. It it might not compute with our inclination towards self-preservation. However, John already told us why Jesus did it, and that's love. Remember what John said in verse 1, that Jesus would now show him the full extent of his love, which is selflessness. Let's recall Jesus' ministry to this point. He has healed the sick. He's given the, the, the blind sight, he's cured diseases, he's drove out demons, he turns water into wine, he fed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish, he raised a young girl and Lazarus from the dead, he ushered in God's kingdom, he, he taught us what mankind should, should look like, how we might live in God's ways, on and on. And all these things he has done, but in verse 1 tells us that now, now he's showing us the full extent of his love. Whatever he has done to this point was not just noteworthy, but monumental, and yet in this moment is something powerful. The Son of God, in all his glory and power, in all of his love and devotion to these people he ministered to, knelt down on his hands and knees in the dirt and the grimy, stinky feet of the disciples he began to clean. He washed each one. He washed Thomas's feet, who would doubt his resurrection. He washed James and John's feet, the two sons of Zebedee, who so self-righteously fought over who would have a place next to Jesus in heaven. He comes to Peter. Peter does not want Jesus to wash his feet. He believes that he should be the one washing Jesus' feet. And you know what else? You know who else's feet he washed? He comes to Judas Iscariot and scrubs every inch and in dirt on his feet. 
But the disciples, nor we, should be surprised by this display of utter selflessness. He, he already told us that the, to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, we must be the greatest servant of all. To, to humble ourselves, to love others, to help meet the needs of those around you, to treat others in the way that you want to be treated. And Jesus extends his selfless ministry to the feet of the disciples as an unbelievable act of love in the face of their pending betrayal and denial and fear. I hear the echoes of those famous words from Paul from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It's not envious or boastful. It's not self-seeking. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But why? This is the question that Peter asked as Jesus comes to his feet around the room. In fact, Peter demands that Jesus stop what he's doing and allow him to wash Jesus' feet instead. And, and I think we can resonate with Peter because selflessness doesn't make sense, especially in our world. Selflessness, if we're honest, is viewed as weakness, submissiveness, a setup for failure or second place. Why would we subjugate ourselves to that kind of character trait or mindset when the world is just going to keep moving on past us and people will get what they want even if we don't give it to them? And, and what happens if we put others' needs before our own? Won't they just take advantage of us? Uh, and, and what if we are in need and no one is willing to do the same for us as we've done for them? Do you remember a few years ago, there was a story that went viral of a woman who was stranded uh, on the side of the highway with no money, only to have a homeless man um, give her his last $20 so she could have gas. And the young woman and her boyfriend were so overwhelmed <clears throat> by this man's generosity that they wanted to share it and raise funds to give back to this man, to help him get back on his feet. And they shared their story online, and it went viral. Um, within a, a few uh, weeks, over 14,000 people had given over $400,000. It was amazing. Except the story was a lie. The three people involved made the entire story up to make money off of people's compassion. The three ended up spending most of the money on uh, gambling and vacations and luxury cars and clothes and expensive handbags. Um, and so much of it just was later just gone. In 2019, they were all convicted on wire fraud, money laundering, facing less, no less than 10 years in prison. You see, selflessness doesn't make any sense, does it? There are way too many people out there that will take advantage of our generosity and humility. And we hear stories like this, and our response is to guard ourselves, to turn inward, to do what's best for us, to protect those that we love, and to only look out for our best interest. But look at what happens in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do what I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
It never ceases to amaze me the way that Jesus shows us the world is actually upside down, and he's turning it right side up. And the way that our culture and politics and economics runs the world, to be selfless is, is this notion that a person will begin to work out of a scarcity, that they will lose something as a result, that they will not have as much as they started with, whether that something be resources or money or time or character or trust. But what Jesus teaches the disciples in this moment is the unbelievable act of humility is that selflessness is a blessing. You are not losing something, but gaining something. You are not working out of a scarcity, but working out of an abundance. In fact, economists and psychiatrists did a recent study that proves Jesus' words to be true not only physiologically and cognitively. The study was conducted by Harvard Business School and the University of British Columbia. They wanted to look at human bodies' response to selfishness and selflessness. And the study found that there is a correlation between happiness and generosity. The study found that spending as little as $5 on someone else elevates the levels of euphoria and relaxation and energy and sociability within your brain. Many studies have linked volunteerism to happiness, to better physical health, to increased mental health. One study followed a group of mothers over a period of 30 years, and over the course of three decades, 36% of the women routinely volunteered experienced major illness. And of those who volunteered rarely or never, 52% experience major illness. Another study found that older adults who participate in volunteering organizations have a lower level of depression, anxiety, and increased ability to live longer. Another study conducted that ages 55 and older, it found that a consistent volunteering led to 44% increase in your length of life. As one psychologist put it, kindness and nice behavior might be like a psychological chocolate. People might actually enjoy doing kind things for others and might be an emotional engine for driving pro-social behaviors. God made us to be selfless creatures. It's not only for the good of others, but it's for the good of our own health and longevity. Can you see why Jesus said that to live as he lived would be a blessing. To serve as he served would be a blessing. Can you see why selflessness helps us live in abundance, not out of a scarcity? Despite our our reputation as selfish creatures, human beings are also capable of unimaginable acts of selflessness. I love my wife. Tomorrow, actually, we celebrate 13 years of marriage which means 13 years of sainthood on her end for putting up with me every single day. I might have days, like everyone, that my selfish impulses and stress do not convey this truth. But nevertheless, I love my wife. I was so deeply in love with my wife that when we started talking about having kids, it was something we we both wanted desperately. And I remember having a conversation with a friend at the time who told me that he just didn't get it. I remember him saying, Bringing a kid into your life is only going to complicate the good thing you have with your wife. You're going to have less time and money to spend on each other. But the funny thing is, when you have kids, you discover that your love for your spouse only grows. 
And, and you just when you think you don't have any more love to give, then you have another kid, and you worry about if you have enough kid love to give both children, you discover that you have this amazing surplus of love in your life. You see, that is the truth about living selflessly. While you are pouring out into the lives of others, God is continually pouring into your life. Don't we believe that God is abundant and eternal? Do we not believe that, that God is capable of filling us back with whatever we fear we might lose when we choose to care and to put others first? Don't we think that the God that invented time can give us more time and space when we're willing to sacrifice time to give to others? Don't we think that the God that created Sabbath will give us rest, even if it means that we're serving our coworkers and neighbors through generously giving of our time to them? Don't we think that the God who heals will not only give us the ability to do self-care when we're giving ourselves to others, but help restore us as a result? Can we come to believe that despite all the many varied and complicated problems people face in this world, that we serve a God who is more than enough and can give us more than enough to thrive personally as we also meet the needs of our neighbors? Can we come to believe that the God who continually fills us up so that goodness might spill over out of our lives into the lives of others? So can we step out in faith today to believe what Jesus said to be true? Can we begin to practice in small ways selflessness to discover the blessing that we might bestow on others and the abundance we might receive in return? It's as simple as taking time to listen to others, to validate the feelings of other people and their experiences, to sometimes going without knowing what others might do for you in, in response. It's as simple as giving a little of your time to volunteer, paying for the coffee of the person behind you in line, and practicing patience with those who have done wrong to you. It's as simple as being available to people need you, more likely than not, that that project can wait five, ten minutes, or even a day. It's simple as inviting that person that you wouldn't normally invite because making that person feel valued and loved is quite possibly something that can change their lives. Can you and I believe that we are selfless? And selflessness is the most remarkable attribute that God has created within us. I'm reminded of this prayer from Mother Teresa. She writes, People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfishness or ulterior motives. Be kind anyways. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyways. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyways. What you spend your years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyways. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyways. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyways. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough, but give your best anyways. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyways. Let's enter into a time of reflection and response.